From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Today our guest is both an accomplished cattleman and an aviator. Matt McCamley operates Lansfield M alongside his wife, Janelle. With a rich family history in the Australian beef industry, Matt's passion for Brahman stems from the influences and experiences throughout his life. From the saddle. From the saddle. Matt, thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. Thanks, Caitlin. Good morning. Matt, tell us, how did the McCamleys get into Brahmins? Well, uh, it all started off, or would have been back in the in the 40s, uh, my grandfather actually had a pole Hereford stud at Yologi, where, where I and my wife live at the moment. And basically, um, through the, the trials of central Queensland, the, the ticks, the droughts, the, you know, the lack of water in the early days, um, you know, because the properties weren't developed. I guess that uh, my father and my uncle were looking, you know, diversify into uh, another breed of cattle that could handle the conditions better. And along came the Brahmins, basically. So your Logie back then wasn't developed. What was the water situation like? Well, there was very minimal dams. So there was spring water and, and wells that were dug by hand and things like that. So it wasn't set up well with waters everywhere in the paddock. So cattle had to travel for water. It is uh, an undulating property as well. I wouldn't say mountainous, but it's undulating. So um, as you see in the periods of summertime and things like that, in particular, the pole Herefords, they, uh, they didn't travel a long way from water. And they, you know, they used to congregate around there and they'd eat all that country out that was close there, which wasn't good for the country as well. So what era are we talking when you went from Herefords to Brahmins? Well, my father started uh, into Brahmins in 1960, started Lansfield Brahmins. So, I mean, they would have been looking a few years before that uh, when they first came in into Australia. And they saw the advantage in the Boss Indicus breed or the Brahmin cattle then in their foraging ability, the ability to walk. And basically, there's, you know, their resistance to ticks and, and other parasites, lice and things like that. So how many other studs were around at that point? Well, I think from memory, there was probably five or six at that stage that were going. I mean, the, the stud wasn't developed straight away. They would have tried and done some crossbreeding and things like that. But in 1960, the Lansfield Brahman stud was incepted and it was stud number 125. So introduction to Brahmins, what then? Like bull sales, like what did it look like? Um, basically, the Brahmins were not, uh, how would you say, they were not widely flavoured. They, they weren't the flavour. You know, everyone was sort of set in their way. So it was a battle, I guess, for the Brahmins to gain traction. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were some about. So basically, there was a lot of showing was done in the early days to, to promote the cattle, to see what was on offer. You know, so it being crossed over all the other breeds at that stage. As well, and then um, sort of later on with the sales and things like that to promote the cattle and to get them out there for people to see. Gosh, the marketing would have been a bit different back then. Absolutely. No (laughs) such thing as social media, (laughs) mobile telephones, things like that. How great would that have been? Oh, yes. Hmm. So in the late 80s and 90s, Lancefield was the place to be at. It was an incredible place. Uh, Very, very fortunate to have grown up at Lansfield uh, with you know, three of my brothers who were all involved in the Brahmin industry and uh, and we're very fortunate that my parents were very passionate about the Brahmin breed. 
Tell me about the sales. Uh, so it's nearly been 50 years since the first Lancefield sale. But we went through a period, you know, when when all of the, the boys, all of my brothers, I call the boys, my brothers uh, were all active in it. And um, basically, I guess the, the late 80s and the early 90s, we saw my father was really on a push. And and I guess we were all at home, we're all working, we're all managing properties. And, you know, it was a two and a half thousand head strong stud with a lot of influence of cattle from America. He'd brought in, uh, he was heavily involved in importing the, the cattle through the 80s to get live cattle in. So we saw them coming through the sales. So we had things you know, like we were having night sales, day sales. We're putting over 200 head through the day, things like that, with Dad's brother, Graham, or Sir Graham McCamley. And yeah, it was an interesting time. So your dad and your uncle, did they used to do it together? Yeah, so it used to be the, the Tartarus Lancefield sale back in the day, well, in its heyday through the late 80s. Uh, I shouldn't say in the heyday, like we're still having extremely strong sales this year. It was record sale for us forever. And I think the leading one for the year, but uh, which is great. We were very well supported. But um, in those days, it was it was incredible. Um, the night sales, the old Gracemere selling facility, the old wooden stands, the, the way we used to get in. It's unbelievable the, the stress, I guess, that even we felt and the cattle to, to get them through. Like um, we were commanding, I guess, not, you know, a lot of spectators there, obviously, and a lot of buyers, but there was up to 2,000 people that were there at those sales. It was just, just amazing. Just to be there or to buy? Just to be there, to buy, the atmosphere it used to make, um, like there'd be, the stands would be full. There'd be no room to sit in a stand. All the walkways would be full. The going up into the ring, it was underneath a, a big catwalk and there'd be, you know, rails like where all this, they'd be full. There'd be people hanging off the fences going up in there. It was, it was incredible the amount of people that are really there to watch it. What made it the place to be? I think... Basically, at the time, there was a lot of influence of new genetics that was coming through. I guess it was the, you know one of the few night sales that was happening, the glitz, the glamour. It was a show piece. The agents, the, the sellers, be dressed in tuxedos. Um, the wow. staff, myself, gold shirts, just the whole thing, glitter on the cattle, trees, like the whole ring would be presented. It was a, it was a production. Whose idea was this? Like, where did the brainchild come from to make it a production, a show almost? I think it was a, a combination of things. No doubt that Dad and Uncle Graham saw the need for that. And also, I guess the, you know, some of the show cattle that were being sold through that. So they were lead cattle. So to put the emphasis on those cattle, we had a sale the night before, the day sale of, of the other cattle and the herd bulls and things like that. And I think it evolved into a production. So, I mean, every year that we did it, the, the bigger it sort of got. So, you said that you've got three brothers. What's the ages? Oh, all too old now. <laughs> um, so, I'm the youngest. So, I'm 55 now um, through to a spread uh, at 65, which is Andrew. Yeah. the okay. oldest. So, during these sales, what role did you boys play? 
Um, basically, we tried to do as little as possible, but no, we didn't get away with it. Um, look, because uh, David and I were involved with the showing of the cattle at the time and our wives or partners at the time also very heavily, so um, we were involved with that. So like presenting the cattle, leading them in the ring, showing them off, keeping mm-hmm. them clean, just the usual things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was, uh, everyone was involved, you know, in some way, shape or form. So I think in those early years, Scott, who's the principal of Lansfield now, he was really into machinery. He was a mechanic by trade um, and he did that and he sort of took on that side of the role. Andrew was working away managing places, you know, that was a bit further away than from Lansfield and Yologi. He was there and did a lot of the commercial work. And David and I were very fortunate that we did a lot of the showing. Andrew did a lot also in the earlier part of it. He loved machinery and driving trucks, so that was a good way for him to get about too and meet people. And, yeah, and then in later years, Scott's obviously taken up the passion, not so much for showing, but of, of good quality cattle. So it's, it's all bred in us and, mm. and we all do share a passion for the Brahmin breed. So, Matt, your Logie is Delulu. Yes. Lansfield is in the same area. Absolutely, yep. Was there any other places at any point? There was other small properties through there that uh, mum and dad owned. So one in particular when we were growing up was Wyanga, which is a small irrigation farm near Wawan and had a feedlot on it as well. So we went to school from there as a primary school and David and Scott to high school from that one. And we'd be there five days a week and then we'd um, go back to Lansfield on the weekends and school holidays and things like that. What was childhood like? I thought it was great. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, we were bits of rogues though. We were... We, yeah. we were yeah, we probably all never always did as we were told, but we did learn. We did go out and chip burrs for 50 cents an hour and things like that, so it was good. You got oh, yeah. a blister and you you did those sorts of things or drove the old Massey 135 tractor raking hay. And we we're all very fortunate, though, that we had the ability to be able to learn life skills that we hold for us today, whether it be from machines, cattle, things like that. We were, we were very lucky. Schooling, year 12 or earlier? No, for myself, um, grade 10. What about your brothers? I'm pretty much sure that most of us were grade 10. Yeah. Um, and I think Andrew, yeah, Andrew went to Emerald Ag College. So after school, I mean, you just spoke that it is bred into you, three boys, because you were all Brahmin breeders to this day. What did after school look like? You, you finished at grade 10 and then what? So basically we went back to, oh, well, I went back to Lansfield and worked there and I was working under, you know, Two brothers, so Scott and David. So, like mm-hmm. Scott, Scott was doing a lot of uh, work, like fencing or machinery and things like that. And David was helping with the stud. So, David, yeah, was involved with that at that time. And so, a bit between them both, but just very fortunate to be able to learn how to drive a bulldozer, you know, mm-hmm. learn how to fence, all of the things that you, you know, you need to know in the in the rural environment. Now, we we're very fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to to have been shown it and learned it. Matt, at some point you transitioned into aviation. Where did this come from? Oh, look, I guess it was my uncle, Sir Graham. He's uh, been in aviation, you know, pretty much ever since I could remember. And uh, actually going back, um, the grandfather and Uncle Graham used to own an airline in Rockhampton, Country Air. So I guess on one side of the family, it's sort of been in our blood. It's a good way to get about, but, you know, we have a passion for it and love it. There's nothing much better. I call it therapy. Sometimes you get a good, clear morning or a clear afternoon. It's nice and cool. You're up in the air a couple of thousand feet. Not much better feeling. Mm. 
I guess the question, you, what made me get into it? Uh, I could see, you know, it was a passion. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, from my uncle flying around and, and what he could achieve and what people could achieve by using the tool of aviation. What did Dad think? Well, Dad hated flying. Absolutely just didn't like it. He didn't like going on commercial aircraft or anything, and I mean, which is pretty good because he had to travel to the States multiple times to, you know, once oh. selecting cattle. So he he wasn't a fan, but it didn't help when his brother, Sir Graham, um, who was a pilot, used to put the fear of God into him all the time <laughs> when they fly together or at one stage. So I remember Dad talking about it and um, Dad and Uncle Graham used to have um, some blocks out around Ilford home, Bowen Downs and Omar. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'd be coming back to Rocky and uh, there would have been a pilot on as one of, I think it was one of the country airplanes, I'm not sure what it was, but they're flying back in and the pilot hops back in the back with Dad. Dad <laughs> starting to freak out. He said, oh, that's right, I'm coming back here for camp. George is flying it, you know. And Dad was not happy at all. So George was obviously autopilot, but this fellow came back, which is, you know, you'd shudder at anyone doing that now. Yeah, yeah. created the fear in him. Absolutely. So what about mustering? Did you muster with choppers? Yeah, so at Lansfield, there's a lot of range country and things like that on it. So uh, Mantons it was the area that it was, uh, a lot of hills, a lot of clean skins basically and things like that. So I remember going out and I was only young and went a few times, but in that country before the use of choppers, we'd go up with two horses each, things like that. We'd camp at a hut like an outstation oh. and, and muster these cattle. Andrew was heavily involved with that. And then also there was uh, Keith McNamee. Keith used to be a headstockman. So before, you know, we all came home from school, Dad had a headstockman there that we saw uh, who taught us all the bad habits and taught us how to ride and how to fall off in the water when he used to pull you off or pull your bridle off, just teach you all that stuff. So it was all done like that. So when the helicopters came about and that started, it just made it so much easier. And, you know, we can get the cattle out and things like that. So it actually saved us money and time and was a lot safer doing it that way. So just go back, going to mustering and, and camping out to get that. How many head are we talking? Oh, look, probably 50, 60 was about it. But it was it was a nightmare. If you had saw that country, it was terrible. Yeah. yeah. So what changed it? The use of helicopters, obviously, to clean it out. And it was obviously something that we wanted to do too. But, I mean, I guess it was another part of the learning experience for us all too. So we, we learned how to throw something. We learned how to tie it up. We learned how to ride in the hills. We did all of that. Did your dad ride? Absolutely. He loved riding. He had a favourite old horse that used to be called Cheeky. It was a buckskin. He was, went back to Brumby breeding and it was his favourite old horse. And then in later times, he used to still mine. I had a lovely horse, a quarter horse I bought off Bernie Martin. Class was the name and uh, Dad loved it and he took an eye to it. So he used to try and steal that one off me. But <laughs> um, Dad had a couple of bad accidents and had a bad back. So he didn't ride as much in his, in his later part of it. No. So the transition to helicopter mastering, what era are we talking? The 80s. Were many doing it then? I remember Bruce McCamley over at Fern Hills probably got the first one in ages and he had the Jalobra country that he used to use it. And um, yeah, so there was a few about then, absolutely, yeah. What was the industry stance on it? Oh, I think back then it was uh, used to chop if you had, you know, feral cattle, clean skins and mountains and things like that, whereas um, you look at it now and they're pretty much used for everything. And it's different. The way the education in the stockmen that are flying those machines now, they're not just pilot, they're stockmen. So that's changed. Uh, before you were chasing feral cattle and there'd be people on the ground tying them up and, and a lot of things like that. 
Whereas now it's just evolved so much and a pressure and release the same as you would be if you're on a horse, on foot, on a bike, in a helicopter. It's, it's not much different now. So are you saying back then the, the pilots weren't often stockmen? Pretty much. You know, there definitely were some that were stockmen and they were the most favoured ones and they did a great job. But I mean, um, there was a lot of Kiwi pilots around then. So they grew up in New Zealand chasing deer and things like that. So to read beasts, let alone Brahmins, things like that, there was a technique that you need to adhere to. Otherwise, if you got the cattle hot, you're just, you're fighting a losing battle. Yeah, I was going to say that would actually make an impact on the job. Yeah. So at what point did you say, right, I want to learn how to do this? Well, basically, I, I guess you're sitting on the horse looking up, you think that'd be great. You always have that admiration. But I guess it came through that there was a couple of times when um, some pilots come in and they're mustering the cattle and, and it was more that I thought, well, why are they mustering the cattle when I wouldn't put them in the yard to draft the cattle? And I guess from there, I sort of got the bug and thought, well, I need to learn to do this. How old were you? When I first really got the bug of the chopper thing, it was probably about mid-20s. I could always wanted to, but I didn't think it was achievable or realistic at the time. And and being a young fellow, I was too busy and interested in doing other things uh, mm-hmm. at that time, <laughs> so partying. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it was from then, and I, I started to learn. I was 25, and a good friend of mine who was flying at the time had a bad accident and broke his back. And I sort of thought, well, if he's going to do that and he had so much experience, yeah, I don't know if that's for me. So I pulled out of it, and I did fly planes. I learned to fly a plane when I was 20. Mm-hmm. So I stepped away from it, kept going, and then um, by the time I was 30, it got the better of me and I had to go and learn. So what did that look like? Did you have to go away? Did you go to a school? Like back then, what did it entail? Basically what I did, I went to Maroochydore, down to to Mike Becker, and uh, I did probably a few days down there. And I thought, yep, this is for me. I'm happy. I'm comfortable. I like the instructor. It was actually a guy named Fergus Ponder. And um, Fergus had come from a, a mustering background and done a bit of ag and a bit of everything. And a guy that was same age as me, and I got along with extremely well. And I just said to Mike, said, "Yeah, I'd like to do this license. I'm happy, you know, with that." What are your thoughts? He said, "I oh, will come to you." So that was great. So I had a, a 22 sit in the backyard, mm. pilot, um, and basically did uh, most of the flying there at home go and check waters, you know, make some use of it. So it was practical, it was really good. And uh, when I was ready for the license test, we flew back down to Maroochydore and um, sat my test and away I went. And I came back as a private helicopter pilot. Then what? Well, then I bought my first 22. And then a good friend of mine, James Croson, he operated it, mustering. Actually was one of the first ones for Hughes Pasture Company, for Peter Hughes. So okay. we did all his early mastering and got him going with them. So we did that. We wore one machine out and I bought another one. And then, you know, the whole chopper business sort of evolved from back then. So after having the second 22, the R44s were out and I got to liking those. thought this will be nice. So I bought myself a 44. Then it didn't take much longer after that to realise this thing can't sit in the shed. It needs to go out and work for a living. And that's when I upgraded to commercial and ramped up the aviation side of things. So, Matt, I know now like you have to have so many hours under your belt to do stock mustering and all that. Was that the case back then? Yeah. I mean, you know, green pilots can go and do stock mustering. 
you know, you have to have a, a few hours under your belt and get a mustering endorsement and rating like that. So that's still one of the best ways to get experience in big hours and things like that. So that hasn't changed. But a lot of the government contracts do have hourly minimums. You know, some of them will require a 1,000 hours or 1,500 hours under your belt before you can do some of the flying for some of those companies. Can you remember the first time that you were mustering stock from the air on your own? Absolutely. Yeah, I can. Shit myself. (laughs) Um, It was at Lansfield and I was up there and it was a a paddock. We're working out of the yards called the Neaton's Yards and it was a blustery day and, you know, you'd learned about wind and you learned about everything. He said, yeah, yeah, no worries. And then all of a sudden you get focused on a beast and you come in and then, shit, I'm downwind. Shit, I run out of power. Jesus. There's a horn going off, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it just all hits you. And then luckily the training all came back, got myself out of a situation. But I do remember it quite well. Um, and I thought, shit, it's not as easy as everyone made out. And it just made you sit back and respect. But look, I was very fortunate that I did, you know, spend some time with with a couple of guys that were mustering at the time. And Jimmy was one, Jim Cross, and the other one was Kent Hansen, who was actually working for Jim. And I got, you know, opportunity to sit in with them and do that. And I could highly recommend that everyone should. Any new pilots going into the aviation, especially mustering, mm. in environments where there's ever-changing conditions with winds, with stock, you know, stock aren't predictable things like that. So to sit in with someone, find a mentor and uh, get some experience under their belt and yeah, because everyone's going to have a scare. How'd you go finding pilots? Look, it was interesting, but I, I think there was a diverse range of pilots that, that were accessible. I like the rural guys from a mustering background for mm-hmm. the bigger machines. They seem to be more resourceful and things. And uh, we were very lucky that, you know, I had a couple of really good pilots that helped us, you know, expand very well. The government actually calls on you or has called on you to do some work with them. Tell me about that. Uh, well, I'll, I'll step back a bit. So Sterling Helicopters used to be owned by the, the Hewitt family. So uh, Jack used to have that. So basically for when I ramped up the aviation business, so it'll be 2012, Janelle and I bought that off Jack. I had worked in with Jack prior to that. But basically we went on from there and, and there was a calling for that. There was no one locally in Rockhampton or the, you know, the close immediate area that serviced Ergon Energy that did firebombing, that did flood stuff. So, you know, Jack was out here at Theodore. Um, the next closest people were Emerald. Mm-hmm. And when time of events are on, machines are scarce. So people were coming in from Brisbane, coming down from Townsville. They'd come in from everywhere and they just didn't have, I guess, the local knowledge. Like you get things done, but, you know, you know what it's like yourself. In times of disaster, emergency, there's nothing beats some some local knowledge. So I guess that helped and we we got a, a good name from starting off with a couple of machines and just getting the job done, being safe and efficient. And it grew from there. So what sort of jobs? Uh, everything. So we did a lot of power line work. So storm damage, things like that, or after cyclones, things like that. Yazi, uh, we went north through to Cairns, um, doing power lines, working for Ergon Energy. Also, Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, a lot of um, you know, fire mitigation, fire control, fire bombing, uh, in times of disaster, the military. We did a, a lot for Shoalwater Bay. For the Defence Force, for their fire stuff as well. So, um, you know, when they're exercised on in dry times, you know, their ordnance would start fires. They'd call on us to go and put them out. So, 
uh, there, floods, yeah, pretty much all the disaster stuff. Um, yeah, it just sort of ramped up from there and just got busier. Were you ever exposed to, I guess, tragic circumstances? Unfortunately, in that side of the career, I guess the longer you're in it, that you're exposed to it more. And there, there was a couple that spring back to mind that that we did. Um, one of the probably the the worst ones was one of the one of the Ergon guys, people that we knew that we used to fly around was was bitten by a, I think it was a type and a snake in some uh, bush and um, yeah. Yeah, we came across him and, and there was, yeah, and other things, accidents and things that, you know, we'd be involved in search and rescue. So uh, there is things there, but you, you try and, oh, you know, nothing prepares you, could prepare you for anything like that. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, yes. On the flip side of the coin, you would have seen how beneficial it was to be in the air for, you know, some of those tasks, especially the floods and, and things like that. Yes, Caitlin, and I mean that's that was the whole reason for you know the business for ramping it up and why I wanted to do it. I think that everyone seems to have a purpose in life and and what they do. And for me to get into the aviation and that side of in particular, I just wanted to make a difference, particular to the local area, but anywhere that I could. And by doing the fires or the flood work or helping rescue people, or doing that, it just yeah, it felt like we we're providing a valued service to the community. We were speaking earlier about the Jambin floods, the 2011 floods mm. that, you know, was it just felt national, to be mm. honest. And you, you mentioned that while you were flying out to assist with those, Janelle's on the ground fixing flood fences at home. Yeah, look, and it was a it was a tough one. So, you know, it'd be floods and there'd be fences down everywhere and we'd get the call to go to work. And I mean, you know, it was the making the money and, and providing a service. So away I'd go and I'd be back a week or so later and uh, poor old Janelle's left there stuck doing the flood fences <laughs> while, while I was apparently away having a good time. Yeah, so. so. From the saddle. From the saddle. Connected to rural communities and farming families, the team at Hewitt Consulting have a unique understanding and ever-growing portfolio of rural digital and marketing designs. The most reputable marketing and design business in rural Australia. And a few sneaky ones overseas. Logo designs, bull sale catalogues, marketing material, custom trucker caps and merchandise, horse adverts and a whole lot more. Caitlin and Robin understand that each project is as unique as the business it's for. Contact them today, www.hewittconsultingco.com.au. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. At what point did you meet Janelle? Ah, uh, dare I say it, Theodore Show, many, many years ago. Right. Many years ago. It'd be 40 years ago. Sorry, 38 years ago. So there's yourself and Janelle at your Logie. Yes. What's a day look like? Oh, it varies. So basically, yep, you're tending to animals, making sure the feed and water, um, anything preparing for sales and shows, plus any, you know, whether we're going machinery, whether we're farming today, or there's always uh, a bit of variation or whether I've got to go flying. So there's still a variation in all our days. But uh, one thing that does take priority is the stock work and the welfare of the animals now. The, the older I get, the softer I'm getting, I find. And definitely for me, uh, now that I've sold out of the aviation business, the um, stock take a priority over everything, or bar 
I'm a wife, of course. So I've got to say that. <laughs> Does Janelle come from an agricultural background? Yes, yes. She's from a small uh, farm community in Alton Downs. Yeah, the family have got very strong ties to the rural industry. So with it being yourself and Janelle, do you have employees that come in and help you? Yeah, look, we usually have at least one permanent with us and then we have a couple of contractors that help out for any major jobs, so like for yard building or any of the fencing or any any of that sort of projects now. Um, and we have casual operators for the dozers and for our renovations and things like that as well. What about when you were flying? Yeah, we were fortunate enough that we always been able to get you know someone to come in to help out with that. So yeah, there's always tried to have someone else there to help out. Are you finding now it's harder to find that someone than it was once before? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Oh. It is It is incredible. And I think it's a, it's a problem not across just the rural industry. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's just a skilled staff. Is, there's, yeah. there's a big shortage. Why is it, do you think? Uh, look, your answer would be as good as mine. <laughs> I, I really don't know. I don't know how you'd explain that. I know my father, he used to work uh, for a key cut business and... Um, he was saying like the amount of, you know, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds that actually didn't know what a screwdriver was just recently. That's amazing, isn't it? And, you know, you spoke about as a kid that you were exposed to all that. You had to learn how to do it. it it's life lessons that yeah. seem to be missed now. No, that's right. And I mean, like I say, I, I don't know. I guess if you look back and you look at the things that we did as five-year-olds driving a Toyota, but you Mm. Couldn't see over that you used yep. to kneel down, look yep. through the steering wheel. <laughs> uh, I think people be locked up for that sort of stuff now. The, mm. the things that we did, we, we had to buy our own things. So we'd have a second motorbike, it'd break down. We had to learn to fix, fix it. it. Otherwise, you didn't have it. That's right. Um, fix all the punctures. Like yeah. it was just, um, it's just what we did. And the hands on approach has changed. Yeah, it appears to have. Yeah. Yes, it has. But I mean, you know, we've had some good staff to come through and they're good, but it's it's harder now. I think um, I'm not sure whether it's technology that caused the problem even. I'm not yeah. sure. As a Brahmin breeder, as a stud, you'd have to be fairly particular with the people that handle your cattle. Absolutely. So look, at all times, there's always either my wife or I, you know, doing something there if, we, if we're not both there, yeah. uh, working with the cattle. But, I mean, it's about an education process. So, I mean, usually if anyone new ever turns up, sit back, watch what we do, and then we'll slowly get them into it. We don't do that. There's one thing I have learned. We bought some Angus cows last year, you know, mainly for a recipient herd, things like that. So, definitely, you can't treat a Brahmin animal like an Angus animal. There's no way. They're definitely different. Brahmin definitely think they're very intelligent and you ask them to do something, they'll do it. If you want to keep make them doing something, it doesn't always work out that well. No. Hmm. Whereas an Angus, you can make them do whatever you like pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike you, Caitlin. <laughs> so, Matt, your involvement in the industry, uh, you are the director or have been the director for the Australian Brahmin Breeders Association. Yeah, so I've been a director there since 2008, um, still current now, um, and also served as president there for three years, I think it was from 16 to 19. What made you go into it? I blame my brother for that. Which so, one? David. So <laughs> the bugger, he was on the council, he was there for a good while, I don't know, maybe 10 years, maybe more, but he said, oh, I don't want to be president, so I don't think I should stick around. So I'm getting out, you need to stand. And I said, well doesn't mean I'll get in. He said, no, it doesn't, but I'm getting out. So 
at least there's an opportunity to stay and see what happens. So that was in 2008 and I'm still there. Mm. Yeah, so blame David. Do you think it's been important? Oh, look, I've, I've really cherished the time that I've been there. I've seen a lot of changes. You go in there and you want to change the world. It's not quite that simple. You know, it's, it's a board. It, it's done that way for a reason. But to see the inception of the technology being used now with DNA, with all the research programs that have been done, it's been a great learning curve for me. And, you know, I can see that with the use of technology, with DNA, with other things there, you know, how quickly you can reproduce an article that you want uh, or, you know, change an article very quickly with the use of genetics is is quite amazing now. We're very fortunate to be on the forefront of that in the Brahmin breed. Does it make you reflect back to when your father used to import genetics and things like that? Do you find yourself doing that? Absolutely. So I look back and I think when dad, he brought a lot of cattle in from the States, so I imported a lot in and they were used and it was trial and error. So, I mean, this worked with that line or, you know, the Indus worked over a lot of Manso lines and things like that. But I guess we look at then and I look back on it and, you know, we we had feet and leg problems we had to fix from some of the imports. There was others. That was, there was so many things and it took us a long time to get it out. So we had a big learning curve. Now, because of all the data that was collected, it's all there now. So everything's available to everyone basically now when they go to select an animal that it's available. You can look up history on fertility. So there's so many more records now available. I'd like to think it was easier now to be able to to select what you're after because of the information they've got from the earlier records. What role do you believe history plays in in today's society, in breeding Brahmins? I think that it's been imperative to where the cattle are today. If it wasn't for pioneers in the breed and the foresight they had, there's no way we'd be, well, any industry would be where they are today. But looking back on the data collection from fertility, weight gains, carcass abilities. So like the other thing about Lansfield, it not only had a start, it had a very strong commercial herd that all the data was collected on the carcasses. And when the feedback came through from the meatworks all the time, Dad was always there studying it and seeing what sirelines were doing what. So he had the individual data of all of that stuff. And then when breed plan came along and Dad was a... You know, like he helped with all of that by submitting a lot of data to there. So for people to look at a catalogue now and and look at data and they see an EBV and they see a carcass, you know, like a a, a number there and they can tell them how strong or, you know, what sort of carcass they expect to get or a fertility one or a growth one. So like that's been 40 years in the making getting some of that data there. So it's been imperative to what they are. And in saying that, not just that, so there's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that don't use breed plan but still use their own data or, you know, like growth figures and things like that. So, I mean, always going to record. You know, it's always going to help with the breed and where it goes in the future. What about changes in adaptability over time? Oh, look, there's no doubt about it. And I mean, a lot of breeds are adaptable, there's no doubt about it. But one thing that the Brahmins have shown to be able to do, they're so adaptable. From running in the Gulf in the hardest country you'd ever see to, to doing well in feedlots to the 
tenderness to the, you know, there's so many things that they've been able to do. I guess the biggest thing, the learning thing that, that I've seen is that a, a single trait selection for any sort of breed of cattle is very dangerous. You've got to, you've got to have other ones that you do, do there. And, and another one at the moment that's on us is the pole. So they become very popular at the moment. So I guess people that are, you know, selecting single trait without keeping the others, I think you can only get away with it a, you know, a couple of times. Let's talk cattle recession. Where were you during this time? Oh, look, luckily I didn't have the stress and pressures of the, of the cattle recession. So the late 70s, I was going to school. I was primary school. So I was uh, at Wawan and, and we had another block at Dixalee on the way to Lansfield and it was a farming and sort of a backgrounding block. So back in those days, my um, mother and father we're in partnership with mum's brother-in-law and, and mum's sister, so Marion Cliff Jennings, and we had Longton, so it was a, it was a million acres um, near Charterst House. A lot of shorthorn cattle up there, and um, basically I, I remember remember those coming down from there and yeah, sometimes being dragged off a truck and things like that. It was terrible, but they'd be backgrounded at, at Dixalee. And then uh, if there was feed there, otherwise they went through to my uncle's feedlot, Uncle Cliff, uh, down at Nullabidji Fat and then off to Cannon Hill. But that was sort of through the shorthorns and they were getting bugger all for those cattle. It was just a way to get rid of them, basically off the place to save them dying there. So I don't think they made anything out of those cattle. But Dad diversified into farming pretty heavily. So we're up to 4,000 acres of farming through that time between Yulogi, where I live, and Dixalee. And I guess that got him through just diversifying a bit bit the same as uh, the drought of 2019. I hope I never ever see another one of those. Um, the aviation business got generalised through that drought because it was just atrocious at home. You say 2019 drought and I, I just feel the weight of that. I just, I remember, you know, I don't work with Finley on the land, but I just, I saw what it did to him. It was uh, probably the hardest thing that I've ever ever been through like um we were very fortunate to know and I that, that we did have another business that helped us financially to get through that period but I stopped flying in and out of Yologi because it was just nothing but dirt and I can show you some photos and videos and and even places where we where the cattle weren't it was just so dry that the we went through the stage the grass went brown then it went gray and then it just went to dust mm. And it was uh, like all the hills, you could see the rocks, you could see everything. We just fed everything. We bought silage in from road trains from Middlemount. Uh, the tractor mixer went every day and we had, uh, you know, what was left of the breeders. We came back to a core herd of 400 head and we just fed them every day. Mm. But, yeah, it was um, yeah, something that I never want to or hope I never have to, to endure again. Someone asked me recently if Finley ever takes a day off, like or, or looks to take a day off, and and the short answer is no. And then I reflected back on the drought and I said, well, actually, when they're feeding cattle and they're dealing with the drought day in day out, that's when they're worn out and that's mm. when they're looking for a break. And it's not the physical, just the physical. Where it's taxing mentally. It's, it's mentally, it's, it's, and you know, you don't see a cloud in the sky, or they come up and they they rain elsewhere and you know you think it's next door but it's not it's mm. just it's very trying and it is very hard on on people and on their lives and their livelihood i used to say you know go back 20 years you didn't have the weather app on your phone to be looking at tomorrow's forecast or next week's forecast and there was it was actually quite brutal to oh, to do that worst thing ever 
Yeah. yeah. Absolutely worst thing ever. So, you know, in those times you actually stop looking at the weather um, and you just, you don't. But, you know, you take solace. We're, we're very fortunate in the rural communities. You've got a lot of good friends that, you know, people will help you out. It's, mm. a, it's amazing the resilience of local communities and, and your friends and, and what people will do. I think it's because we have to be. It's it's amazing, and I mean that we've got a mutual friend in Kent Murray who's a, you know he was a cameraman for Channel Win Win at the time, and like he even offered to come out and help and feed the cattle just so you get a break. And I know that he helped Jane Saunders out out at um, Dingo, and just people like that from different walks of life are just wanting to come out and help. It was quite sobering that the whole thing actually was, uh, but yeah, obviously something that I hope that we never see again. What did you learn from it? Well, I learned to drink a bit more. <laughs> you know, friends and family played an important role. Um, I guess you look at things and there's always someone worse off. Um, we were healthy, um, things like that, so we are going all right. So there's always someone there. So I guess you tried to look on a bright side of things. You know, the cattle that we had were very well looked after, so they were good. It was more, uh, I guess, a monetary or business thing that was that was hurting us most, and then the thing that you could see that there was no relief inside. I guess was the the worst of it. As far as the the markets at that time were okay if you had cattle to market, um, but you know you didn't. It was only the the bull sales that we had that you know that kept us going. There was no other cattle to sell because there's nothing in in the order. Well, you could sell them, but you were, you weren't getting a rate for them. Mm. Mm. So for, for what we were having because, that, you know, store condition or less, things like that. I remember the feeling I just felt like I need it to rain and everything will be okay and it rained and it still didn't feel okay. No, it, um, from your background, you know yourself that um, after a long drought and you see it rain and the country just looks worse for a little while and you think, my God, you know, yeah. what's happening here? But it's um, it's a very sombre sort of feeling because it doesn't happen straight away. But I guess from that, then you you get in and and uh, you get some follow up rain, and then eventually things start to grow. And then in most most events, you know, you don't forget them, but they get placed to the back of your mind. But that one, twenty nineteen, no, it's always there. Like it it was it was a very bad time. For, for, for us, you know, or, you know, there's a lot of areas that were terrible, but it was it was bad. Like we'd started carting water, we were feeding cattle. You know, it was it was tough. So basically, believe it or not, I wasted money on a sprinkler system for the house. The drought hadn't broken, but we'd had rain. So the first thing I did was actually put sprinklers in around the Elogi so I had some green. You know, it's funny you say that because we are fortunate to live on a river. So house water-wise, we were fine to a certain point. Yeah. And I was so paranoid about having green grass for Finley to walk home to so at least he had some green. Absolutely. And, you know, and you sit down there after the day or feeding your cattle and checking your waters or if anything was stuck in dams and things like that, and you'd come back and you'd actually sit down that lawn you'd have a beer. Mm. But unfortunately, I didn't have my lawn, so it was all bare dirt. Mm. But I did that after we had water security and I knew that we were right, that we didn't have to rely on all the water to, to water the stock or anything like that. So, But, yeah, and it's still in place and I, I think it was the best money I'd ever spent was putting my sprinkler <laughs> system in just for peace of mind. So what about... Bores and things like that. Did it ever make you think, well, where else can we source water from? Or so um, we were out of water in one area of the property, um, which I don't think it ever happened before. 
Uh, Mum's, you know, well in her 80s. She's 87 now and she had never seen anything like it. So she's been at Lansfield since her mid-20s and in that area. So she had never seen anything like it. So, yes, we had run out of water and we had started carting water to one area. Janelle and I looked at, we got the Dee River running through the end of our place and we looked at potentially piping or pumping it from there, which was going to be 10 kilometres back to where we needed it or to a high spot, which was eight kilometres away. We just thought, oh, we're just not sure about the security water in the Dee River. And luckily we did because it was back to a puddle before it rained. So that water hole that had never been dry in known history, it was, it was nearly gone as well. So basically we just, we have a good well down in front of the house that was, I think it was put there in the 50s and it held us through and it kept us going. But we were very, I guess, mindful on not wasting any water. Your father, Jeff, sadly passed away in 2002, so he wasn't around this time, but did you find that your mother had knowledge of of how to sort of deal with or suggest ways to sort of work through it? No, uh, not so much there. I mean, because, you know, she was feeling for all of us because we're all, you know, even in the dingo area, they were dry. Everywhere was dry, so we're all sort of suffering through it. So it was just more support, yeah. um, basically, but... You know, I can remember growing up at, at Lansfield, you know, 15, 16, we'd be feeding, taking loose and hay out the cows all the time. Um, but I guess, you know, back in those days, Dad had a probably slightly different management strategy. We seemed to be in drought more often than not, but I could see what his end goal was and I knew why. So Dad always believed in working the country fairly hard, but he was out building numbers to put on that next place he bought. Yeah, okay. Because he was very driven and had a goal, you know, and that's why we are where today. Like, I'm at Yologi because of that reason. Scott's at Lansfield, David's at Palmel, Andrew's at Bowen Park. It's uh, because it's all places that Dad had bought. And then, you know, when, when Dad passed away, we were, all of us were just very grateful that we had an opportunity, that we had a guarantor and a loan at the bank if we wanted to do it that's what we got and we were just very fortunate so we we did that and then we paid off all you know so mum was debt free when when dad passed away and then what we did with it after that was up to us but we just yeah we were very grateful. Matt where do you see the industry going? Oh look at the moment it's a it's a great industry it's very buoyant as far as the Brahmins go you know the, the pole thing is is on a roll at the moment and they're sought after and like I said to you earlier I'm, I'm mindful of a single trait selection, but the, the Brahmin breed in particular is very adaptable. Um, there's a diverse range of genetics available, and I can see them still forging ahead in the future to meeting all of the markets requirements, that's for sure. I guess as an agricultural industry, if we if we look at it from that perspective, we've got the shortage of skilled workers, like we just said, yeah. the whole animal activists and that side of things. But we've also got access to great resources and international resources and genetics and Hmm. experiences and... You just say about that and you're right and, you know, animal activists and, you know, basically the do-godders are always going to be there. But I think what's changed definitely in the last, well, I was going to say 20 years, but even, you know, through to today, the, the welfare of the cattle or any animals in the rural industry... They're so well looked after now. Mm. It's changed so much. I mean, it's um, even the companies, you know, they've adopted a lot of practices that have, you know, that have been forced on by industry. But I think that the rural industry is in great shape. And I do believe that the welfare of all the animals, it's right up there. Do you believe social media plays a positive role in this? 
Oh, look, it can, but it all can be the opposite. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, it's the same as anything. If you see one negative, people, you know, that's all they see. They yeah. don't see all the positives. So, yes and no. I think uh, the social media, it's six or one half dozen of the other. So the unfortunate thing is not a lot of social media is put out there on good things. Mm. Or if it is, it doesn't go far. Uh, people are so negative which is a shame. As you said, should be glass half full, not half empty. So I have a friend who has an Instagram page and she purely, I had to introduce her to Instagram. Why? Why? Why should I do this? Because Nikki is in her 40s mm-hmm. and she purely just showcases the beef industry as, you know, they breed cattle and they're only small, but, you know, they're working dogs and I don't know how many tens of thousands of followers she's got now from all over the world, but one remark that stuck in my mind, a lady commented and said that it is because of her photos and videos that she posts, she now eats beef again because she can see the animals are respected. Mm, That's good. One person. Unbelievable. Don't get me wrong, she'll get a lot of hatred and abuse and death threats, but one person. Yeah, and it all starts somewhere. And I mean, and that's the roles of so many things. So breed societies, you know, I think can be more proactive in that side of thing. And I know that they all are and they're trying, but it's it's an unfortunate thing. And I don't know how you change um, people. You know, I'll give you a classic example. This fellow that we all know that's um, in a bit of strife at the moment, like with Matt Wright, so with what's going mm. on. And like, it's huge media and that, and that poor bugger, like he'll be, you know, he's a lovely fella and he's done a lot for the Northern Territory and things like that. And you look at one, you know, a negative and everyone mm. I think is sort of starting to think that he's guilty already and, and nothing's come out. He hasn't said a word. He hasn't mm. done anything. And it's terrible. It's just the negative in so many people. And I guess that's the biggest battle we have with everything yeah. is a mindset yeah, on a lot of people. absolutely, getting people to see different sides. And, and it doesn't matter what industry, where you are, whether you're dealing with people, cattle or whatever, I think it's a, it's a problem. Matt, what or who influences your passion to make a better tomorrow? Um, I think, that, to be honest, there's something inside yourself that does that. So obviously, if you can leave the place better than where you came or someone happier from talking to them or being their friend, I think plays a very important role. I couldn't really say that that's a what or a who. I think it's about the person that you are and what you can do. So whether it's having a beer with your friend, answering the phone call when when someone rings that wants to have a chat, there's so many so many different things you can do. So it's not a who. I, I think it's in people's souls what you can do to help people and leave people better, mm. happier, or in a better place, or, or knowing that there's someone there. So that's a, that's a tough question to answer. I, I hope I've answered that right. But <laughs> yeah, that you've really laid it on me. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you very much for that. And I do congratulate you on a career that isn't finished yet, but some achievements have been made. And, and we do thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Caitlin. And look, thank you very much for asking me on. It it means a fair bit and um, hope I've done you proud. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications. From the sky.